Hey folks, and welcome to the Modern Agile Show, episode 41. We are here with Rich Sheridan, who's the president of Menlo Innovations, the chief storyteller for the company. And Rich, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Great to be with you, Joshua. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, we, we know each other. I, I've, I've visited your amazing uh, office in, in Ann Arbor and um, a big fan of your work. So I'm excited to, to have a great discussion. I think we will. So um, when I first visited you, um, I went to Zingerman's, the deli. Yes. And um, I had a fantastic deli sandwich and then, and then came over to your office. And then you, you informed me, because I mentioned it, that, um, that you'd, you'd learned a lot from Zingerman's. Uh, what can you say about that? Well, anyone familiar with Ann Arbor, anyone who comes through, typically does end up at Zingerman's, no question. Um, and they are about 20 years older than we are. They were founded in 1982 by two famous Ann Arbor entrepreneurs, Ari Weinzweig and Paul Saginaw. And in many ways established this pattern of that, that we try and emulate as much as we can that culture is the key differentiator in your company. And so Zingerman's uh, now almost 40 years old is about a $70 million a year food empire just here in Ann Arbor. They, yeah. they have not franchised or anything like that. They actually teach their culture to others. So they have a component of Zingerman's called Zing Train. And they just have amazing things they teach and share. Ari and Paul have been great mentors of mine. Uh, they're accessible to me because we're in the same town. They know we think like they do. And there's just so much I've learned from them around visioning, around open book finance, around great customer service, around taking care of your people. And so a uh, wonderful model. I would highly recommend all of Ari's books uh, Zing trains classes. There's just so much to learn from them. Yes, I bought those books uh, when I was there. I came away with a stack of books, and I, I'm still working my way through them. They're, they're, oh, they are heavy books, and it is heavy reading. You don't read Ari's books quickly. Yeah. Well, so one of the things I noticed immediately when I visited your shop was um, the open accounting. The yes. uh, you know. But what did you call that? Uh, open book finance. Yeah, open yep. book finance. Great. Because um, that, so that, I think to me, that speaks to your approach, which is, because we talked about this, we're both CEOs. And the pressure of managing the finances is not joyful, necessarily. <laughs> well, it's, it is life-sustaining, right? If you yes. run out of cash, you run out of a business. So you have to... You have to protect that. And I will tell you, that's a big thing right now. Yes. Yes, it is. And uh, however, what, what impressed me so much was that you had it all on a large wall laid out where you showed, I believe it was just income coming in and expenses going out. And the entire company could see this, look at it, understand it, and help to manage it. Even rather our than visitors it all, get to see it. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so rather than rather than it all falling on your shoulders or a small group, let's say an executive team to manage, 
it was it's completely open. Well, and if this um, portends one of my fundamental beliefs about management, if you don't share information with your team, they will make up a story in the absence of that information. <laughs> I have never seen a human team make up a better story than reality. They always make up a worse story. Right? If they're not telling us, it must be really bad, or it must be really good and they don't want to tell us. You know, they're keeping all the profits for themselves. And of course, what you really want to do, and you know this as well as anybody, is as much as you can engage everyone, you're going to come up with better answers. I yes. learned a long time ago there was no value in me being this, uh, trying to be the smartest guy in the room. Right. Now, with the open book accounting, though, did you always have that in place, or did you at some point decide this is, this is necessary? Uh, we did not. Um, we probably started doing it, mm, I'm going to say, roughly 10 years ago. We're almost 19 years old now. Yeah. Uh, and it was born out of our contact with Zingerman's, and they had pointed us to a book uh, by a guy named Jack Stack, who's still out there writing and running a company called, and that his first book was called The Great Game of Business. Mm -hmm. And he basically yes. said, business is, is like a game, but most businesses run where uh, the people participating in the game, the players in the game, they don't know what the score is. They don't know what the rules are. They don't actually know if they're winning or they're losing. And you wonder, why are they, why are they behaving this way? And he just said, what if we started teaching them the rules of business? Uh, Zingerman's took it to the next level. They came up with some fairly structured approaches uh, to this. And, uh, and we started modeling ourselves after that. Yeah, yeah. But was any of that driven by your own personal need to um, have a more joyous workplace? You know, as you say, I, I think uh, the financial part of any business can be uh, a little bit of the nervous part of the business. Mm -hmm. And when you start sharing information, you have to teach people, what are they seeing? How does this work? Right. And so for us, I think the, the, the connection to our culture, which ultimately uh, connects to this word joy is this idea of openness and transparency and collaboration with the team. It's reflected in our space. It's reflected in our project management systems and our planning systems. It's reflected in our interpersonal communications. Why wouldn't it be a, in, uh, why wouldn't it connect to this part of the business, to the accounting part of the business? Why would we want to keep that a secret from everybody else and uh, pretend that we're open and collaborative with everyone? Yeah, I love it. it. It's great. And uh, to me, um, you, you talk a lot, I believe, about how you have to model joy, right? that, that, that there has to be joy in the, in, the, in the leaders. You can't just ask everyone to be joyful if you're yourself not in, you know, in a state of joy. Yes. And, uh, you know, and I always say uh, our goal is, uh, as we talk about in our mission, uh, we, we talk about ending human suffering in the world as it relates to technology. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the people who aren't familiar with our world, with the world, that they wonder what I'm talking about. What kind of suffering is there in soccer? And, of course, now <laughs> I can conveniently point to um, uh, the Iowa caucuses and how bad that project went. Uh, every unemployment system in every state in the union right now, uh, this paycheck protection program that's crashing regularly because people can't get all the data in there. So I think quickly people realize, yes, in fact, there is suffering. And we talk about wanting to return joy to technology. 
and we don't believe for a second that we can create that kind of joy in the world, which is what our primary focus is, is creating joy out in the world with the work that we do in our room. But we don't think you can create that joy in the room, in the world, without there being joy in the room. Yes. So we have to focus internally as well, because I don't think you get a better result out in the world than you're getting in the room with the people around you. Yes, yes. It's, uh, it's, I think it's a fascinating topic because I, I know like um, there's a difference in leadership. Uh, some leaders are focused completely on the customer. I mean, that's their primary focus is customer obsession, customer delight. You hear these terms quite a bit. Um, and then sometimes you hear about the workers not having such a great time of it. Others focus completely on their staff and their happiness, um, hoping that by them being happy, they'll make really happy customers. Uh, Richard Branson comes to mind as, as someone who does that. Um, so it sounds like you're looking at both, um, but maybe more of a focus on one or the other first. Yeah, you know, in uh, my most recent book, uh, there uh, I started speaking on the topic and I started preparing the keynote uh, for uh, the subject matter of the book, which is really about leadership. How do you create a culture of joyful leaders? And this wonderful metaphor was born out of the discussions that led up to this keynote. And it's this idea of comparing the forces at work on a human organization to the forces at work on an airplane. And if you think about an airplane, even if you don't fly like I do, I have a pilot's license, I haven't flown for a long time, but I, I had to learn all the forces at work on an aircraft to be a competent pilot. Uh, but most of us basically understand how a plane works. There's lift, there's weight, there's thrust, and there's drag. But if you think about a human organization, you have to think about all of those. I don't think you can focus all of your attention on one if you only focus on lift, but no thrust. You'll never get anywhere. Um, and so we talk about the lift of human energy, which is really about the team. How do we make sure we're doing the best job we can to keep the energy of our team high? You know, the Gallup organization has been measuring disengagement for decades now, and it's been stuck at 70% disengaged workforces. Wow. Well, that's a great opportunity for us as leaders. If we could just flip that equation around, go from 70-30 to 30-70, imagine what we could accomplish. Mm -hmm. So there are many things we do that we can talk about if you want, about how do we keep human energy high? It's a big deal. But that thrust that pulls us forward is just as important. And to me, that's the purpose-driven thrust. Mm -hmm. And that is an externally focused purpose. Yes. And I actually encourage people to look past their customers, their employees, and their shareholders. I think the purpose of an organization that really drives a human team forward is that one that's thinking about the effect you're having in the world for people who don't pay you for what you do. Mm -hmm. uh, simply for us, we create custom software for a living. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. The people we're really focused on purpose-wise are the end users. Yeah, They don't know who we are. They don't pay us for what we do. We will not even meet them in large numbers by the time we get the work done. And yet every day their lives are impacted by the work our team does. Yeah, yeah. Really nice, and, really nice. And, and the weight, just to round out the model, just because we might have more to talk about around this, the weight that holds most organizations down is what I call the weight of bureaucracy or meeting mm -hmm. load. 
right? And then the drag of fear. Yes. Yes. Fear. Yes. Um, that is a big, big one, especially in a, in a time yes. like this when we're in this Ooh, yeah. uh, global pandemic. Um, yep. But that's a beautiful metaphor. I, I love it. I absolutely love it. I, I'm, uh, I am not a pilot. However, I love, I love the story of flight. I've been, I'm a huge, um, I'm kind of a scholar of the Wright brothers. Nice. And, um, and also on um, a little bit on, on the early gliders who preceded the Wright brothers. Um, Lilienthal, the German, who was yeah. the, considered the father of, of gliding. And, and the, the processes that they used, and even the nature of the, of the Wright brothers, their character, and how they overcame, how they learned to fly. And, and deal with drag and deal with thrust and all these things. Um, is, to me, it, it speaks to so much about Agile and how we experiment and learn rapidly and how we um, ultimately um, have to work in a safe way. If the Wright brothers did anything unsafe, they wouldn't be alive yep. uh, during those times, right? They spent years perfecting their, their gliders and then, their, and then their airplanes. Safety was... Absolutely number one. I mean, so here we are on Zoom, which has been in the news lately for, yes. you know, it's, it's feature full and yet uh -huh. it's lacking safety, which makes everyone nervous. Yep. So yeah, it's been a topic of conversation with our team because we're, uh, we're conducting customer meetings with it. We're participating in, conversations uh, over webinars and that sort of thing and you wonder uh, are we are we doing the right thing should we be using this and, and again I think that goes to this point of purpose-driven organizations not just there to make money right yeah because if you crash your plane and it happens to land on someone or a neighborhood or whatever right it's it's bigger a bigger impact than just you yeah, when I give talks on uh, on this subject, I do bring up the Wright brothers. So I appreciate that you and I share that passion. Um, and you're right. I mean, the techniques they used were very agile techniques. And there was Langley kind of using the waterfall approach, oh, yeah. right? And he, you know, and, and there's a, a National Guard airbase near uh, where I grew up here in Michigan called Selfridge. And it's named after the first guy that died flying yeah. one of Langley's aircraft. Mm -hmm. And I think the difference was that Langley was trying to build an airplane. The Wright brothers wanted to fly. It's a mm -hmm. huge difference in purpose. Of yeah. course, they were going to be more careful. They wanted to fly and live to tell about it. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's uh, the, the story of the Langley uh, approach. So he had all this money from the Smithsonian you know, he was like the venture-backed capitalist of today yes. who, um, with all this money, basically accomplished yep. nothing except for creating. They, they, would, they would lampoon him in the, in the magazines and, and newspapers back then and say, that was he making submarines or was he making airplanes? Because everything would just go down into the, into the river. Yeah. Um, but Well, and his experiments were very expensive. The Wright brothers' experiments were very inexpensive because they built that little wind tunnel. And they could try out so many different airfoils so quickly in a sort of a, call it a unit test driven kind of fashion. Uh, it's a great uh, analogy for our, our agile movement. 
Yeah, and for me, it's uh, it's a story, first of all, of the fact that I, I'm tired of talking about Agile as a movement from the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Agile is an adjective. It means the ability to work with quick, easy grace. It means being quick, resourceful, and adaptable. It's an adjective. And we can say that the Wright brothers were Agile. We can say, yes. you know, that all kinds of people in history uh, were Agile or are Agile and uh, exhibit agility. I want us to get back to what real agility means. Yeah. That, that's like my that. own thing. But, I um, like it. Yeah, I do believe that Selfridge, by the way, was the first person to die on an airplane that the Wright brothers flew. Um, oh, okay. We'll have to, the, yeah, <laughs> sorry, I'll have to correct that little note. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't the Langley, but, but uh, you know, it's, it's still incredible. I couldn't agree more. Like the way the Wright brothers behaved, I have been studying them and studying them and studying them to try to understand what made them so agile. And um, so we could go on for a while about this. Yes. Um, but there is something I want to connect to purpose because you talked about the purpose-driven organization. And there's something that many authors don't seem to write about when they write about the Wright brothers too much in terms of reflecting on them. And that is this, that Wilbur Wright was an all-star kind of scholar and athlete as a young person, right, as a teenager. He was an absolute star at everything. And then he went and played ice hockey one day and this kid in the neighborhood happened to hit him in the face with a stick. I, we, no one know, they barely ever wrote about this, so no one really knows what happened. But as a result, he, he lost all of his teeth at a very early age. All of them had to be pulled, all of them. He was homebound for the next three and a half years. His mother was dying at the time, and so they were living there together. But he went from about to go to, to like Yale University to being homebound for a three and a half year period. Now, during that time, he read a lot and he got into the whole gliding movement and was a big fan of Lilienthal. And, um, but I believe that that was very formative in him wanting to have a purpose. That once he got out of that three and a half years and he started his interest in gliding, you know, they, they had the bicycle store and all that. I think that he was very purpose driven to have some impact on his life, to have done something that was commensurate with his abilities. So to me, that was a big part of it. This, this, and so we, we talk about this pandemic right yeah. now, you know, Wilbur Wright went down into this period of just sure. nothingness, you know, kind of a Joseph Campbell hero's journey kind of story at a very young age. Right. Right. Yeah. And so I, I, I think that's part of it is that. So, you know, I, I think out of some of these things that occur to us in the world, good things can result, right? Um, yeah, I often have talks with my daughters. They're all adults now and often their own careers and such. And, and they've seen what we've created at Menlo. Uh, they've all in one way, shape, form or another worked for Menlo uh, at one time or another. And there's a little bit of yearning. They, they want in their own careers, what they see I now have in mind. And they ask me questions about how do I get here? And I look at them and I say, well, you do understand this was all born out of pain. <laughs> right. right. And, and they don't necessarily want to hear that. And I tell them, but, you know, guard your suffering. Keep track of it. Understand where it's coming from because 
it is often in those moments of suffering that the greatest ideas for escaping it come from. Yes. I wouldn't have created Menlo had my career been flying along just perfectly in the 80s and 90s. Yes. I didn't even want to be in the profession anymore. I was so disillusioned with how things were going. Mm-hmm. And so it was in that, what I call my personal trough of disillusionment that the yes. ideas for Menlo were born. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. So... So you, out of that came this, this vision for a company where, where you would love to come to work. Yes. And I know you took a chance on that office. You told me a story about your, you know, you t- told your wife, hey, there's this space. Can you, can you tell that story? Yeah, well, we, we've, um, every one of our offices, including the one we're in right now, which I'll, I'll, I'll give your viewers a little bit of a glance into the original Menlo office here, which is now my messy workout room, which I'm happy to say I am working out these days to Good stay a little Good bit healthy. You. And it does um, not look that messy, so don't worry. Yeah, but uh, this is where Menlo was birthed. But um, all of our offices have a story, but I think the one that you're referring to is the one of our current office, where yes. uh, we were um, uh, we were growing. We needed a new space. Uh, we wanted to be a big open space, a single footprint floor. Uh, it was ultimately going to be three times the size uh, and then ultimately four times the size of our current space based on how we expanded. But it was in the basement, the windowless basement of a parking structure. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it was in downtown Ann Arbor and it had three qualities we really wanted and one we had to settle for. Uh, the three qualities we wanted was big and open, uh, one floor. We wanted to be downtown because that's exciting for the team to be sort of in the hubbub of downtown Ann Arbor. And we wanted to be able to afford it. And that's how we lost sunlight. I see. And, uh, and I remember my youngest daughter came in who had grown up with Menlo when we started the company. She was about 13 years old. And, uh, and she came in and she saw it for the first time and she just wept. And she said, Dad, you, you can't move Menlo into this space. You'll kill the company. You'll kill the culture. And I, I understood it. I actually, you know, she, she uh, uh, spooked me a little bit at that point because she's a very wise young lady. And, uh, and I began to question it myself. And my wife was the one who came in with my co-founder and she said, oh, no, this will be great. We can make this work. And they did. Uh, James and my wife, my co-founder, James and my wife, designed the space. Hmm. And uh, it has worked wonderfully for us for the past seven years. Uh, it's this big open room as you've been in. It's brightly lit. Uh, we counter, counteracted the lack of actual sunlight with nice bright lighting. And I know we have accomplished what we wanted to because almost universally when someone walks in our front door for the very first time and if I happen to be near them either walking in with them or near the front door when they come in the response is always wow yeah yeah (laughs) because they can literally feel the human energy in our room and I think uh, that is confirmation that we pulled it off that we got done what we wanted to get done you did. And I remember when I visited, there were dogs, there were babies, there was a breastfeeding, yes. breastfeeding room, uh-huh. uh, yep. just uh, incredible. And of course, lots of visualizations on the walls and including, yeah. you know, accounting info and, and just uh, wonderful energy. Yes. Um, 
So let's see, make mistakes faster. That's a phrase I think you use. Yes. That's still something that you use these days? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it goes part and parcel right next to a big phrase of ours, which is run the experiment. Uh, and I think, you know, it, at the heart of any human endeavor, we can go back to the Wright brothers or forward to modern software development, um, we have to acknowledge something. We have to acknowledge our humanity. And the acknowledgement of our humanity is simply this. We are going to make mistakes. We just are. Yep. It'd be neat if we didn't. I, I'd love it if we find a way to get to some major league goal that we don't make mistakes. So if, if we accept, and I think every one of your listeners has to accept, <laughs> you don't have to believe me or anything like that. You just have to use your own experience. If we accept that we are going to make mistakes in an important endeavor, we then, I believe, have two choices. We can either make really big, slow mistakes, or we can make a lot of mistakes quickly and correct them while they're still small. Right. And this brings up something that's really important in my thinking, and that is this idea of systems thinking. A well-working system is, A, it's a simple system, B, simple systems have what I call short communication and feedback loops. Uh, it's like riding a bike. Uh, if you get slow feedback on a bike, you're going to be down on the ground in no time. Mm -hmm. uh, but we learn to ride a bike because we get this feedback really quickly that we're wobbling and we learn how to correct it. Mm -hmm. So I think, uh, you know, the methods that uh, any of us would employ that will get big things done well are gonna be this idea of making small mistakes quickly and correcting them. Now, inside of this, I know is a subject that's near and dear to both of our hearts, and this is idea of safety for the team that's doing the work. Yep. Because one way to slow down mistake, mistake making is to punish people when mistakes are made. Uh, to, 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 and it could be as simple as heaving a sigh, a look of disappointment, right? the raising of an eyebrow at a meeting, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. you know, a, a, a reassignment of someone because they made the mistake and now they're off the team. Mm -hmm. And if we do that, it doesn't take long before suddenly mistakes just disappear from sight. Mm -hmm. And now in a fear-based environment, the mistakes don't actually go away. They just go into hiding. Right. And now we can no longer adjust for them. And then we're on the track to make really big, expensive, slow mistakes. Yes. When silence, when silence takes over, instead of like Amy Edmondson talks about silence versus voice. And um, once you have the culture of silence, you know, and people don't speak their mind, you're really in trouble. Yeah, we have since our beginning, even before our beginning, because I did all of this two years before Menlo was started, we have always had a very strong, consistent, weekly estimating practice. Mm -hmm. And I know estimation itself is a subject of controversy in the software industry. And I hear see the hashtag no estimates, and I completely understand. I get it. Because it's not estimation that is the problem. It is how the estimates are treated it is how they are regarded and it is how they are interpreted and it is how they are um, uh, looked at 
when you make the mistake of guessing wrong in your estimates and what right. do you do when that happens? And that's why everybody rails against estimation. Yeah. Yeah. Now let me ask you this. Cause uh, so what happens when let's say Menlo has learned a lesson, right? You've learned a lesson. You've learned several lessons along the way. Someone new comes in and they suggest doing something that you already learned from. You made that mistake and learned from it and someone suggests it. What, how do you handle something like that without raising an eyebrow, without, you know, you yeah. know. Well, and, and let me also say, we are also human. So I'm sure I've raised eyebrows, you know, <laughs> probably once a week. Uh, so I am by no means some kind of perfect leader here on any of these fronts. Right. Um, I probably need to go back and reread my own books sometimes. Mm -hmm. But um, like, yeah. the, um, the, the key component, I believe, of any cultural system, and the, you, know, you can look well past corporate systems, you can look at humanity, is storytelling. Why yeah. my car says chief storyteller. Right. Uh, you know, the, the, the way we carry tribes and communities and nations forward is through the stories we curate and tell over and over again. And these should not just be stories of success and conquest. This should be stories of, of things that went poorly, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and so by learning to curate and tell the stories over and over again, you can use that mechanism for teaching others and, yeah. and that isn't to say that we shouldn't try again when something we tried again failed we talked about open book finance we failed at that seven or eight times in the last 10 years we keep adjusting it we're even adjusting it we were just going on our sort of probably eighth iteration of how we're going to do that when when the pandemic hit mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I think it's always you should always be open to hearing old ideas uh, reconsidered. Yes, yes. It's, it's a delicate balance, balance I think, uh, you know, telling the stories as you're saying, um, but not prohibiting um, new things from uh, happening or, or stuff like that, yeah. Um, I struggle a little bit with it myself because it's, it's like, oh, no, 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 we, we don't do booths around here. We've learned booths don't really do much and someone wants to do a booth. And I, I start to get a little snarky and a little bit like, oh yeah. boy, here we go again. And it's it's like I got to catch myself and say, wait, wait, wait. You know, I, I, we want a culture here of of trying things out, but it's not easy. It's just not no. easy. Well, and look, I mean, there are things that we as seasoned, experienced, wise leaders should say. You know, let's let's consider focusing our attention elsewhere right now. Right. You, know, right. you have to, you know, I think you should always appreciate the idea and give, you know, storytelling itself, I think for us is, it's a, it, like many things we do, it looks like a slower process. You know, I mean, the fastest thing to do is, nope, we tried that, let's move on. Right, <laughs> that's right. It's really expedient to do that. Uh, you probably leave behind a wake of damage when you treat others like that. Yes. Uh, but your willingness to sit down and say, hey, let me tell you the times we have tried this, what I saw happen, what I'm concerned about. And, and they might. And then, of course, in any communication, uh, and the hardest thing for us top leaders is stop and listen to how they respond to what you say. Right. 
is they might have a good idea. They might have something new. Maybe they do. Maybe part of our coaching of them is you do need to go out and try things like this uh, and see if anything new happens. But, uh, but there's, you know, there is no, um, there's no trade for experience and wisdom either. So we have to, as leaders, we have to always be <laughs> making those judgments along the way and they, they, we won't be perfect either. And it sounds like you're guided by joy to an extent of, you know, is this going to lead to a joyous exchange? You know, is there a lack of joy in the exchange? You know, is, is joy your gyroscope? Yeah, I think it is. And I'm not even sure, you know, I'm always very careful now uh, to say, I'm not sure I even fully understand Menlo anymore. Right. Right. It's a it's a living, breathing ecosystem. It's a it's a biological ecosystem, <laughs> and, uh, and and as you know, uh, all the people who study systems of any sort realizes that biology is the most complicated one. Right. It's it's not necessarily predictable like chemistry and physical sciences are. Yes. There's too many interactions, so I have to be careful to kind of let Menlo be Menlo. Um, right. And, uh, and be, you know, I'm probably as much of an observer of Menlo as anybody is these days. And I mm -hmm. get to observe it when I lead tours like I did when you were in to see us. Yeah. Uh, because what's interesting is I can't, I'm in the room with everybody else. There's no corner office for the CEO. There's no special place for me. I'm sitting at one of the same five foot tables as everybody does who's, who's doing work for Menlo. But no matter where I am in the room, I can't see everything. I can't hear every interaction. I can't know everything that's going on. And so what I delight in is when I lead tours, and I still lead quite a few of them, I get to, I get to peek into Menlo along with you. Mm. I get to, you know, you ask some question and I'll turn to the team and I'll say, so what do you guys think about that? Mm -hmm. And I listen because I get to learn something about what's going on inside of Menlo mm. regularly. That's great. And now you talk about pumping fear out of the room. Mm -hmm. um, do, do you, is that an ongoing thing? Do you still find fear in pockets or, you know, how does that work for you? Oh, there's, I mean, let's face it. I mean, the fear is such a natural human emotion. Um, and, and look, there are things we should be afraid of. <laughs> we should be afraid of a little COVID-19 uh, virus right now. Right. Um, right. We should be afraid of stepping out into the street and not looking both ways. Mm -hmm. uh, should be afraid of gaping security holes in our software. I mean, there are mm -hmm. things that are very healthy fears. Yeah. The kind of fear I want to avoid and the kind of fear that I think me as a top leader in the organization has to work to keep at bay is where are we using fear, artificial fear as a motivator, as a tool of motivation? Oh, yeah. And I will tell you that the biggest place that comes into the room is from our customers, hmm. right? And, and it's subtle how it comes in. They'll come in the room and they'll say, hey, um, uh, we hear you guys are really good. We want to build a new piece of software. I, I, you know, quite frankly, I'm not even sure why we're here. It's so simple. You guys should be able to knock this out in a couple of weeks right uh, there, right? Uh, it's, you know, and then we'll look at them and say, so what are you doing? And they're like, oh, we're building a new nuclear reactor and we need a new control system for it. Right? Two weeks, you know? yes. Uh, you've probably done this a hundred times, but we need something really unique. 
and, and embedded in all of those things is this fear of inadequacy, of maybe we're not as good as we think we are, you know, but, but I always question them, I, you know, in my head at least, I say, you know, why are you negotiating with me already? You haven't even told me what it is you want. <clears throat> and, uh, but, but people use that kind of fear with us. So mm -hmm. I have to guard against that with our customers because right. that's going to happen a lot. Yep. Uh, but also just in, within the team itself and our processes and that sort of thing um, to make sure that uh, we're keeping fear as much as bay. And it's just, I think it's a natural condition of humanity. Yeah, uh, it's an ongoing thing. So it's like your HVAC system, it's got to be in place at all times. Well, yeah. I mean, the other thing is, how did most of us learn to lead? Where I'm did making, we learn this? Yeah, yeah. We learned it from whoever led us, right? And they probably led us with fear. So the modeling is strong in the other direction, mm. right? right? If the purpose of a corporation is to uh, maximize shareholder value, boy, there's a, there's a fear-based statement right there. You know, if you're not maximizing shareholder value today, we're going to cut the lowest 10% and send you out the door. Like, whoa, who came up with this stuff? Yeah, yeah. And then there's the, the companies that say, you know, we're a family, we're a family. And then they just don't treat people. They, they, they just fire people indiscriminately. And, you, you know, you don't really fire family. You typically find a, a way for them to, you know, be valuable. But um, it's, there's a lot of talk. And then there's the people that really are are living. And this is hard. I mean, there's, there's no question. There's, yeah. This isn't, I, I mean, I think sometimes people number one, people equate joy with happiness, and I don't equate the two. They're both mm. important. How do you and distinguish both, them? Yeah, so joy is this really long arc. Joy is, in my mind, hard work done well together to produce mm. some great outcome, right? right? There's, you know, if I, I, I had, I was just training for my first half marathon, okay? I've never done anything like that. The longest I've ever run is a 10K. And every Tuesday, I'd run three miles. Every Thursday, I'd run two miles. Every Saturday, I'd run this progression of three, four. I got up to seven miles uh, before all of this hit, and I kind of got knocked off my pedestal from that. But I would be training for 16, 17 weeks. And then I'd go to the magical day. It's supposed to be on Memorial Day. It's been delayed to Labor Day now. And go run 13.2 miles. I'm pretty sure by the time I get done with that, happiness would not be high on my emotion list. Right. But the joy mm -hmm. of crossing that finish line to look back over the hard work and the dedication and the encouragement I got from others who ran alongside me to say, you did it. There is pure joy in that kind of activity. Mm -hmm. And so again, there should be happiness too. I'm not saying that's a bad emotion or it should be traded away or it's not important. Of course, it's important. We have laughter at Menlo. We have the dogs. We have the babies. That gives us those moments of happiness at Menlo. But joy is that hard work done well together. Hmm. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. And that connects, I think, with your purpose-driven organization, which is um, going for the, for the you know, long haul of what are you really trying to accomplish out there in the world. Yeah, and I think I think we need to acknowledge as humans that there's like some basic wiring inside of all of us. I think we are wired to work hard. I think we actually get satisfaction out of that. We're built to work hard. I think we're built to work hard with other people. 
mm-hmm. in community with one another. And I think we're built to work on things that are bigger than ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And when we get to do that on a regular and consistent basis, I don't think the people who are disillusioned at work are disillusioned because they're working hard. I think they're disillusioned because quite frankly, because they're not. Yeah. Right. I don't know what, expected of me today or I worked hard for a week and then that project got canceled now I'm not something else and uh, or I didn't get a chance to do my best work for some bureaucratic reason that was preventing me from doing that right yeah being a resource versus being uh, you know treating people as resources versus yeah, it's uh, part of a team and team that you care about yeah so you have a new book called chief joy officer and how does that differ from the first book, Joy Inc.? Yeah, Joy Inc., uh, the subtitle was How We Built a Workplace People Love. And it's really about, in many ways, the very tangible things of Menlo. Right. The space, the, the, the way the team is organized. But there was one chapter in there um, that was called Growing Leaders, Not Bosses. Mm. And in many ways, what we did, what I did was I took, yeah, that chapter and expanded it out into a full book. And it's mm-hmm. more about the intangible aspects of leadership. Right. How do we lead ourselves? What values do we uh, espouse for that? What, how do we stay true to those values? How do we think about leadership and how do we, how, what, what things can we do on a regular and consistent basis that continually, um, uh, you know, foster that joy to keep those systems in place. And I think the, the, the um, uh, you know, part of this is about simply um, understanding this isn't, this isn't a destination. It's, it's that journey. It's a journey. And, uh, um, and it's, you know, it's, again, hard work, but yeah. it's, it's worth it. Yeah. It sounds like we're very aligned in, in so many ways. Like the, you know, I've been running my company for 24 years now. And uh, congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you. Um, and it, it's, it's a joy and um, it's not always a joy. You know, I mean, it's a uh, long, long haul is it's a joy. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, it's a place that I see being around for a while. I'm not trying to look for a quick exit yeah. or, you know, something like that. Um, so that changes, I think, when you have the long-term perspective, you, you have time to make adjustments and to improve and, it's not as reaction reactionary, I guess. Yeah. And I, I know I'm at the, you know, I, I, I'm in many ways I'm being asked to consider, you know, what comes after me. Right. Um, now yes. I'm 62. I'm pretty good health. I'm running longer distances than I've ever <laughs> run in my life. Uh, so I, I think I got a, I think I got a good couple of decades ahead of me at work and I don't have any intention of stopping. I really admire people who work into their eighties. Yes. Do I want to spend more time with my grandkids and uh, play a little more golf and maybe do a little more skiing? Absolutely. But I don't want to stop working. Yeah. And quite frankly, uh, it, you know, this is work for me. Yeah. What we're doing right now. Right. And, uh, and it is delightful work, uh, sharing what we've learned with the world. So, uh, it doesn't, nothing I do feels, I shouldn't say nothing. I mean, there's hard things. We're going, we're both going through hard things about what we have to do with our teams to make sure they're safe and can stay in business, uh, given the economic climate that's going on right now. So that's hard. 
and uh, for the first time in a long time, I've actually had some sleepless nights, which kind of weird for me. But um, uh, but I think I do reflect on this idea that I want the thing we've created to outlive me. Yes. And uh, and and I'm pretty sure that means uh, an acquisition is not in my future because you know. Two things. I'm pretty sure if, if IBM Global Services acquired Menlo, we'd be, you know, the culture would be dead in a month. Mm-hmm. Um, and yep. yeah, sorry, sorry to any of your listeners who work for IBM, and that was a sweeping generalization that I should now apologize for. But I just used them as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yes, sure. So now the question is, how do you turn over the reins to someone else in a way that obviously you, you know, at that point you're you're not the visionary leader anymore, uh, but uh, but that you've instilled enough of the core values that they can carry it on forward, that they're not then uh, looking to mergers and acquisitions as the only way to um, declare success, to, to declare victory. Yes, yes. You know, you've made something special, so it's important to to preserve it and have it continue to grow and, and, and become better and better. So, uh, Congratulations on all that you've done. I think it's uh, phenomenal. I was so utterly impressed when I saw that Tom Peters had written the, uh, the forward to your book. You know, he's just an amazing guy. Oh and, my uh, gosh. That was bucket list territory for me. I have developed such a great friendship with Tom over the last many years. It's been incredible. He actually came to visit Menlo not too long ago. Oh, that's awesome. Less, less than a year ago. And it was, <laughs> he's just as cool in real life as he is in all the things that he writes. <laughs> No. I love his tweets. His, his oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, so. he's at that age now where you know, there doesn't have to be much of a filter anymore. That's <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Well, um, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk to us here on the show, and uh, encourage everyone to read uh, Joy Inc. and the new book, Chief Joy Officer, and go visit Menlo in Ann Arbor. It's a wonderful. Uh, place to visit and um, you know you'll have an, you'll have incredible insights into what a real joyous workplace looks like um, thank you thank you rich for for taking the time to, to chat thank you this was delightful and if you enjoyed the show please share with others and let them know about the modern agile show thanks for watching everyone take care